Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quay. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. I would argue that every cloud platform out there biases for different things. Uh, Some bias for having every feature you could possibly want offered as a managed service at varying degrees of maturity. Others bias for, hey, we heard there's some money to be made in the cloud space. Uh, Can you give us some of it? DigitalOcean biases for neither. Uh, To me, they optimize for simplicity. I polled some friends of mine who are avid DigitalOcean supporters about why they're using it for various things, and they all said more or less the same thing. Other offerings have a bunch of shenanigans with root access and IP addresses, and DigitalOcean makes it all simple. In 60 seconds, you have root access to a Linux box with an IP. That's a direct quote, uh, albeit with profanity about other providers taken out. DigitalOcean also offers fixed price offerings. Uh, You always know what you're going to wind up paying this month, so you don't wind up having a minor heart issue when the bill comes in. Their services are also understandable without spending three months going to cloud school. You don't have to worry about going very deep to understand what you're doing. It's click button or make an API call, and you receive a cloud resource. They also include very understandable monitoring and alerting. And lastly, they're not exactly what I would call small time. Over 150,000 businesses are using them today. So go ahead and give them a try. Uh, Visit do.co slash screaming, and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. My name's Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Forrest Brazil, who's a senior cloud architect at Trek10. Uh, more notably, he's also fairly famous for his work with A Cloud Guru, both with the Serverless Superhero series and drawing the Fast and Furious cartoons. Uh, welcome to the show, Forrest. Thanks for joining me. Well, hey, thanks, Corey. It's great to be here. A pleasure. So, historically, you have an enterprise background which generally means relatively large, slow, sedentary companies, at least in the popular imagination. But your focus for a while now has been almost entirely in the serverless sphere. So is that a natural evolution? Is that a misunderstanding in what enterprises are? Or is that one of those, well, enterprise was fun, now let's go ride bikes instead style of transition? Sure. Well, I'm not sure most enterprises have a great understanding of what they are. So I don't think you can really uh, go wrong. Uh, whichever way you, you go there. But I, I think what we're seeing in enterprises, uh, and this is not original to me at all, um, but uh, particularly in the IT departments, we've seen for a long time that there's this growing bimodalism. You've got, uh, you've got your people that are like on help desk uh, and they're answering the phones and they're doing very basic, almost menial tasks. And then at the far end of the spectrum, you've got architects. You've got people that are uh, writing lots of YAML and they are designing services and doing network design. Uh, and there used to be in the middle of all that, you'd have your basic mid-tier IT people uh, that were, you know, Windows sysadmins and were clicking around in, in GUIs. And those people made up the backbone of particularly enterprise IT, IT departments for a long time. I would put a lot of DBAs in that category, uh, application sysadmins, all that kind of thing. And what we're seeing now in the cloud, as I said, is this increasing bimodalism where that middle role is actually going away. There's no longer place for those people. Um, And I I think serverless is just the next step 
on that road for, uh, for enterprises. And so this actually plays right into, uh, if you read my interview I did recently with Joe Emerson, uh, he talks about that same bimodalism cropping up on the development side of the fence, right? Where you have uh, uh, your, your backend development going away, that's being replaced by managed services. And so instead you have sort of uh, some very high level architects on one side, and then you have your front end developers, and there's just nothing in the middle anymore. It's all being managed. The boilerplate, the undifferentiated stuff is moving out to the cloud provider. Uh, so enterprises are seeing that they're taking advantage of it. It means, you know, frankly, they don't have to have as many people in the IT department, uh, which is a huge uh, win for them. But it also actually has some real positive uh, consequences from a technical standpoint. Uh, when I first started working with serverless in the enterprise, first started doing background jobs, then started working on uh, internal applications, actually built an application uh, that saved about a million hours a month of EC2 instance uh, usage, and that was just running on a very minimal amount of serverless code. It was something we were able to build in about a week. Uh, so once you start showing the enterprise that you can have these kind of results with a very minimal investment of uh, time, minimal investment of labor, uh, that becomes very, very compelling because they're used to these terrible, terrible waterfall deployment cycles where things spend six months in development. They go over the wall to QA and that train leaves the station. And then, you know, uh, nobody can touch it except for application people who are terrified of the, of the code and, you know, don't ever want to touch anything. So being able to, to shake that up and go serverless absolutely has positive effects on the enterprise. And I'm seeing more of that now as I'm in the consulting space and, and working with uh, even more folks who have these kind of problems. Gotcha. Uh, let's back up for a second there for those who may not have uh, been paying attention for the last 20 minutes of cloud development. What is serverless? Well, you know, uh, first and foremost, it's a terrible name. Um, so, you know, we, we've been arguing about this for years. It's the, the folks that have been doing serverless are sick of having this argument. But frankly, we bring it on ourselves by continuing to use the name. Uh, so, yes, we get it. There's servers and serverless. Uh, <laughs> Essentially, uh, the, I like to look at serverless kind of the way Mike Roberts does. Uh, he has a, a great article on martinfowler.com about this where he kind of divides serverless into two categories. You've got your, your FAS, uh, functions as a service, uh, services like AWS Lambda. So uh, that's probably what most people think of when they think of serverless. Uh, but he also puts into that category backends as a service. So that would be things like Firebase. It would be things like AWS AppSync and the various services that plug into that to make it an integrated solution like DynamoDB. So what is not a serverless solution will be something like Google App Engine, something like Heroku. Uh, and the reason for that, the reason we don't call those systems serverless is because you are responsible for telling those services, this is how much compute I want. This is how much I pay for. I'm paying for it all the time. It's provisioned whether I'm using the service or not. So there's no concept of like functional billing. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're stuck with that uh, compute all the time. So serverless ideally is everything's managed for me. I'm only paying for uh, compute when it actually runs. And uh, that certainly would include AWS Lambda as the primary harbinger of that. Gotcha. To that end, when you talk about serverless, Lambda is the first thing that comes to mind as far as platforms go. Do you see that that is a larger trend across the ecosystem today? Or is that just my own bias speaking at this point? No, I think uh, the latest number I saw was Lambda makes up something over 80% of current FAS adoption and everybody else is fighting for scraps azure uh google ibm with their open whisk platform uh and and part of this too is uh there's a lot of people that want to be running you know something like kubeless or they want to be running open whisk in their data center uh, so they're not really doing serverless they like to say that they are but uh 
in reality, they're, they're just running a, a layer on top of a container orchestration system. Uh, so in terms of people that are truly doing serverless, Lambda is where it's at. The reason for that is Lambda got a huge head start, right? They've been out since 2014. They were way ahead of the whole ecosystem on this. They saw clearly what the play was. They jumped into that. Uh, and so they've built up the tooling around it uh, to the point where if you're using Lambda, you're not just getting a rock-solid uh, platform that has basically solved the distributed bin packing problem, as Tim Wagner likes to say, uh, Tim Wagner being the GM over Lambda. But uh, they've also plugged into that analytics and they've plugged in various kinds of databases, especially with Aurora serverless now coming out. Uh, they've plugged in, you know, everything else in that ecosystem, machine learning. And so uh, you can feel confident that you're not just getting uh, some functions that are going to uh, perhaps solve the, the happy path or the easy use case, but they're going to hang you out to dry when it really counts. AWS has really backed up the Lambda play with the ancillary services that you need as a consumer to build the applications you want, but also that they need to make money off of it, right? Because let's be honest, uh, serverless is kind of a, a loss leader from a function perspective. They're, they get you in there so that you can use uh, the services like Dynamo and uh, others that, that actually make money for them. It's like you're looking over my shoulder at the variety of different things that I wound up building over the course of history. One of the interesting parts about the serverless ecosystem today is that they say you can build this however you want and it, you're doing it right and that's fine. So I took that at face value and then built out some things that power a variety of nonsense that I do and showed it to some of the AWS people and their response was, yeah, when we said you could do whatever you want, we really didn't think about you when we said that. So it, it turned into a bit of a eye-opener as far as the things, the way that I think about things and the way that the rest of the industry tends to uh, do not often align if for no other reason than I'm a dangerous fool. So while it's interesting seeing my nonsense juxtaposed with what other people are doing, what's more interesting is seeing how other people who are doing this seriously tend to fall into very different use cases, very different patterns. It almost feels like no two Lambda environments are alike. Would you agree with that? I absolutely would agree with that. There's been an attempt over the past couple of years, uh, especially once API Gateway came out, which was really what turned Lambda into a uh, viable platform for applications. Uh, there's been a lot of attempts to put frameworks around the serverless concept. Serverless framework, formerly JAWS, of course, being the most famous, but uh, there's others out there, Apex Up. Uh, AWS has their own uh, extension of CloudFormation now called SAM, the serverless application model, which I really like a lot for AWS-specific use cases. Uh, so, and the reason those frameworks come out is that people are struggling to make sense of all these options, right? Because you're you're fragmenting so many things that you used to be able to think about all in one package. I think one of the things that we are really missing in the serverless space, and this is not even an AWS thing, uh, this is just the industry broadly, is this is a extremely new concept, right? You, you see people saying it's just CGI scripts or it's just PaaS, something we've seen before. And what they're missing is we haven't really seen uh, at this scale all these different cloud services being knitted together to form applications that are you know, serving major production workloads. Uh, and because of that, there's not a lot of best practices around this. So you have a lot of people diving in headfirst, uh, and they're solving these problems as they go. The, the services are immature. They're getting better, but they're immature. The best practices are uh, non-existent. Uh, the, the tooling around it is not there. So you know, it's up to us as a community to acknowledge that, uh, to put the time in and put the work in to 
establish these best practices and then to really educate. The education barrier for serverless is huge. Uh, it's not just about the technologies being different. It's about your workflows being different as developers. Um, it's about, you know, a comfort level from ops folks and from security folks all the way up to the top of the business. So the advantages are real, uh, but we have to get out there and, and help people understand how they can get where they need to be without just getting lost in a morass of pain and agony, because I've seen that happen too. In fact, I've experienced that. And that sounds like you maybe have as well. Absolutely. I mean, for example, I tend to focus on using the serverless framework. You tend to prefer using SAM. Other people would say Apex, Chalice, Architect, or a half dozen others. And the consensus for best practices that has rapidly emerged is that everyone else is doing it wrong. How do you see this starting to solidify as the industry evolves? I think that there's two distinct components to this. Uh, and this is where we get into the question of multi-cloud. So I think that um, the individual serverless providers are really doubling down on their ecosystem providing a lot of value. That's why you see AWS providing services like SAM, the serverless application model, because they believe that their value add is not just in Lambda, it's also in all the things that plug into Lambda. And I'm sure Azure would say the same thing uh, and the other, the other cloud providers. So in, in that sense, they would argue, and in many cases, I would argue that you're not getting the full benefit of serverless if you try to uh, take perhaps the least common denominator from a bunch of different clouds and knit them together into some sort of hybrid serverless monster. Uh, but at the same time, the fact of the matter is some of these providers are far ahead of each other. Uh, for example, I would say that Google Cloud has done some really innovative things with the AI stuff, with natural language processing, uh, even with some of their database services that AWS has lagged a little bit behind on. So if you are able to isolate different parts of your stack... Uh, and you're able to place those on different clouds, then there's some value in having a framework that ties those together. So short answer, too long, didn't read. I think we're going to see native cloud providers consolidating, but we're also going to see individual frameworks that are taking components of a application stack, the analytics component, let's say, the uh, compute component, the data component, and you're going to see them tying those together so that you can build a system that meets, you know, the latency requirements that it has to, but also gets the, the best of all possible worlds. But I think we're a ways out from that. And just to be clear, uh, a single cloud is hard enough to learn. Multiple clouds, uh, frankly, I only know of a few people who are effectively uh, utilizing multiple clouds today. The, the education barrier just grows by leaps and bounds. So we're nowhere close to this being reality. Those people tend not to sleep a lot either. No, no, I, they tend to drink a lot of coffee. Uh, or something. <laughs> Last question before we change to another topic. Uh, what's up with this whole serverless versus containers thing? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think this gets back to the enterprise part of the conversation. Uh, there's there's much trumped up uh, discussion and, and perhaps animosity between folks that are building heavily in production on containers and folks that are using a lot of serverless technologies. And uh, obviously, I, I think that there's no real um, need for disparity there. I think we can learn to get along. But uh, the, the reason I think that a lot of folks are using containers is it's a much easier transition for them. Coming from the enterprise context, uh, you've got these large monolithic applications. Uh, you want to be in the cloud. You want to be well-architected. And it's a lot easier to say, okay, well, we can pick this up and we can put it on Kubernetes and it'll run. Uh, and it, it takes away a level of management overhead that we used to have. So we feel like we're getting some benefit here, but it's a much smaller step for us to move in that direction. Whereas serverless, yes, involves tearing apart everything that you have and learning new workflows and starting over. And, you know, I think the benefits can be a lot more radical, but obviously the upfront costs and time invested are going to be more radical too. So it's not an easy decision necessarily, especially if you have a lot of uh, time and, and uh, people invested in older ways of doing things. 
so I, I think that's what's going on there. I don't expect that tension to go away anytime soon, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Very fair. Uh, Let's move on to another topic, specifically the Serverless Heroes uh, interview series that you run over at A Cloud Guru. Uh, first and foremost, why haven't I been on the show yet? Well, frankly, Corey, you know, you just haven't asked. I mean, that's really the biggest thing. So what I'm hearing from you is you need to get on the schedule and we'll work that out. But uh, I would love to have you and uh, just let me know. Historically, I've always been someone who sits on the curb and claps as real heroes go by. But we'll see what happens. Why not? Remember, you get nothing you don't ask for. So given that you're speaking to more or less everyone who's doing everything in the nascent serverless field, you have a pretty good perspective to see the trends that are emerging in this space. What are you seeing? You know, I think there's a few things. And uh, I, I try to be careful about the serverless bubble, right? There's a very small percentage of people in the industry as a whole that are using these technologies. And so we can get into a little bit of an echo chamber. So I try to make sure I'm talking to folks who are thinking outside the box and coming from different types of backgrounds. And so that includes people in large enterprises, people that have startups uh, like Joe Emerson. On the enterprise side, I've talked to folks like uh, Michael Garsky at Fender, uh, which that interview is not out as of the, the present, but I'll be coming out shortly. Um, and, you know, there's kind of a common theme that has emerged from all these people, which is that they're just moving so much more quickly with serverless than they were before. It's almost kind of an awe in their voices. That doesn't mean these are people that aren't still having problems. Obviously, every one of these people has their own set of serverless war stories, and that gets back to the best practices uh, discussions that we've been having. But overall, these people, uh, with one accord, I think are saying, uh, I'm never looking back. And these are people, again, that are using these technologies in production today. They're using them at scale. So these are not toy projects. These are serving requests at uh, web scale or, or whatever that means today. Uh, so, you know, I, I take their word for it that they're uh, actively happy with what they're doing. I've also talked to some folks that are a little bit more in the, the consultant or thought leader kind of space, which I don't think any of those people would prefer to be known first by that name. I, I try to talk to people that are doers uh, that actually have... You know, oh, speak for yourself. You can email me at Corey at thoughtleader.guru. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, and yes, and, and uh, I believe you're a doer as well. But uh, anyway... Uh, the the folks that are that are actually doing stuff in this space, uh, and, but I but I talk to people that, that go around and uh, see a lot of these deployments, both successful and failed. And uh, what I'm what I'm getting from that overall is that this is a space that is growing. You know, it's it's not just about startups. I think people have a perception that well, if I'm an enterprise and uh, I've got a lot of legacy code, that serverless is not for me. And that's absolutely not true. We're seeing uh, that if you go in and maybe you you take almost like a startup sized project inside of an enterprise, you you build out a, a tiger team and you go after um, something, you, you can actually see enough value quickly enough that it drives excitement throughout the enterprise as a whole. So this is the trends that I'm seeing emerge as I, as I talk to different people throughout the space. I, I do talk to folks that aren't just AWS. I've had uh, Azure Functions um, product manager on the series. I, I've talked to um, Kelsey Hightower, who's a developer advocate at Google. Um, and, and all of those folks have a similar perspective. So again, it's beyond just one cloud provider. This is something that's happening in the industry as a whole. So something else that you've been working on that's impressive to those of us with no artistic ability whatsoever is your Fast and Furious uh, cartoon series. How do you make them? And, and when I say how do you make them, I'm not meaning how do you come up with jokes. Uh, frankly, people would love to know the answer to that and then send me to whatever class teaches that because mine are terrible. But what does your production workflow look like for getting cartoons into, I guess, a digital space? 
Sure. So when I first started doing Phasm Furies, the original title was uh, Cloud Blazers. I was doing them on my personal blog. This was like three years ago. I was literally just drawing them with a Sharpie marker and scanning them in on a, a scanner. It was just something fun to do uh, when I was bored at work. But um, after they moved over to a cloud guru, uh, I got an iPad and uh, I'm using a program called Procreate to do them now, which I uh, love. It's easy to draw. They're easy to uh, color and they, they look a lot better. Um, at least they look better than drawing them with a Sharpie marker. Uh, actually, I have a, a bit of a serverless component to the process uh, and it's uh, related to my invoicing. So I've, I've open sourced that part of the cartoon workflow. Uh, you can find it if you search for a project called Invoiceless on GitHub. So if you have recurring invoices you send out for something and you want to use Lambda and SES and CloudWatch to do that for you, you're welcome to use that process. That's how I uh, invoice the, the cartoons. But it's definitely something I enjoy and I uh, keep my ear close to the ground. So if you have a great idea for a Fast and Furious cartoon, let me know. I'll try to work it in. Absolutely. This solves the problem beautifully of my having no artistic ability whatsoever, which is fantastic. Getting a little bit back to the idea of uh, the dominant serverless platform uh, today being Lambda, API Gateway, and the things that are tied to that. If you had a magic wand, what would you change about them? You know, I I think um, obviously Lambda has come a long way since it was inaugurated. Uh, and a, a lot of the pain points with it are things that the, the Lambda team is well aware of. I know that they're working on. Um, one thing that I, I think just continues to be really tough is the whole packaging aspect, particularly if you're not using Node.js. If you're using something like Python, uh, getting your serverless functions into a a format where you can zip them up with uh, NumPy and SciPy and all the other things that come along with Python. It's just, it's really tough. Uh, trying to work that into a CI/CD process is rough. We wind up seeing people doing things like, you know, committing large uh, packages to source control, third-party libraries, which obviously is not a best practice. And yes, there are ways around this. Serverless framework has some plugins that make this a lot easier. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, as long as it's not supported in the native tooling, uh, it's going to be rough. And, and this gets into a little bit of a broader issue around kind of code organization, you know, how uh, how do I organize my serverless functions? How much code do I include in a function? You know, do I have one giant mono repo and all of my functions use the same code base? Do I split it out and have different code make my packages smaller? It's just not a lot of guidance around this. People flail at this a lot. And so we're kind of uh, veering here between things that the service could be doing and just needs for better education. Uh, but I, I really do think that there's a place here for the Lambda team to step in, make it easier to load certain libraries in the runtime natively without you having to ship them as part of your code package, uh, perhaps making a shared library space available uh, so that you can put code out there once, uh, perhaps have an S3 or somewhere and then have multiple functions that hook into it so you don't have to ship those uh, libraries that you've written as part of every single function's deployment package. So that would be a big thing around that whole area. And then, of course, you always want to see longer runtimes, uh, bigger code package sizes, uh, more disk space, more memory. Uh, and the Lambda team has given some of that to us already. The memory sizes are, are a lot bigger. I also would like to see um, maybe a couple more knobs on the console. Right now you have one knob for memory and CPU together. Um, and I understand why they, they don't want to increase that too much because the whole point of Lambda is you don't really know what's under the hood. It's just a single dial you turn and you get compute right whenever you need it. Uh, but you wind up with people trying to reverse engineer this stuff and do weird things to keep functions warm. Um, so you know either you have to get more transparency or you have to uh, accept some of those limitations. And I think people have made it clear that they love Lambda, they want to find new things to do with it, and uh, they're not uh, satisfied with, with where things are. Something that's emerged that I've noticed is I've had a client or two ask me about, oh, you're using a bunch of Lambda functions. Why don't we just 
crib from your deployment process. And they were very happy with what I did until they ask a fun question such as, okay, that's great. What if a second person needs to work on it? And my response was, oh, I, oh, never do that. That would never work. Why, why would you ever have more than one person working in your company? And then I realized I've gone off the deep end again. It's almost like every person that I've met who's doing extensive work in this space has been building their own workflow and their own tooling around it for a little while. There's a definite sense from my perspective that there needs to be a unified process unless you want to spend the first week of a new hire getting them up to speed on your specific unicorn deployment methodology. Right. And this gets right back to what I was saying about the need for well-defined best practices in this area. And there's things that AWS can do that don't involve making changes, obviously, to the services, uh, getting some more quick starts out, some reference architectures. They've got some of that. I'm working on some stuff uh, in that space right now. So keep your eyes peeled on the, the quick starts for some, some help there. But uh, really what's going to help this uh, is just more people getting into the serverless space and more voices added to the discussion. The people that are doing serverless today, by and large, they're, you know, I'm going to use this term with heavy air quotes around it, but they're 10x developers. Uh, they're people that are early adopters. They're on the cutting edge. They're the kind of people that will go and play with stuff and they'll build stuff. Uh, even if all of the tooling isn't there and there's, you know, 20% missing features just because they're excited about it and they figure, well, I can paper over any gaps that are there because I love writing glue code and this is all going to be awesome. But the reality is that, that then you wind up with a bunch of solutions where everyone has its own 20% of special sauce, and that's not going to be viable long term. So I, I think it just involves more people getting involved, more people saying, uh, you know, hey, I'm not going to use this until it uh, meets a, a standard that's a little bit more uh, settled down. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's it's already happening. It's only going to continue to happen. We, we are, we're way ahead of where we were six months ago, 12 months ago, 18 months ago. Um, and I expect that trend to continue. It's a, moving in the right direction. Absolutely. I think from my perspective, at least, it feels like serverless today is either a toy or it's being used to spackle over feature gaps in AWS offerings natively. And I, I suspect that today there might be a bit of truth to that. I don't believe that will be the case a couple of years from now. I think we're going to look back at what we're dealing with today in a similar way that we do with EC2. If you take a look at EC2 10 years back, Doing anything with it was like pulling teeth. You had an entire cottage industry that sprung up around making it understandable to a human. Today, two or three clicks, and you have an EC2 instance or a thousand EC2 instances, and you're not having to go slog through very low-level configuration details. It feels like Lambda is following a similar maturity curve. I have no doubt that it will. I love um, Simon Wardley's frequent comparisons of the reactions to uh, Lambda and, and then going back and putting them side by side with the reactions to EC2. It's sort of that uh, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then they then you win uh, kind of thing. And, and I think we're somewhere between uh, fighting and winning on the on the serverless side in terms of it being a viable technology that's that's really being embraced by the industry as a whole. Um, but as I said, we're, we're way ahead of where we were. And I, I would actually take a little bit of issue with the statement that uh, it's just a toy or it's being used to paper over gaps. I, I mean, I think there's people that have that perception, but especially as I've gotten more into the uh, the interview series I've been doing for A-Cloud Guru and talking to people like Rob Gruhl at Nordstrom and Michael Garski uh, at Fender Digital. Uh, and of course, Netflix has a whole 
uh, range of serverless capabilities. You know, there's um, it's really more about the the quality of your engineers, uh, and, and folks are doing really incredible things. Uh, what's really going to mark the maturity of the service, though, is not when it's just being used for toy things, uh, but when it's being used for serious things by uh, people that are you know, not at the very cutting edge of adopting every new technology that comes out, but when it is, uh, it's just seen as something boring, basically. Once Lambda becomes a boring technology, that's when it's really going to get adoption. The grown-ups, as it were, people with serious regulated workloads where if they mess things up, people die or the ATM starts spitting out 20s. Well, yes, but again, I, I don't want to imply that those type of folks are not using Lambda today. They absolutely are. And in fact, some of those folks are the ones using Lambda most heavily. You can uh, look up what Capital One is doing as an example of a, a banking company that is really heavily into serverless, into DynamoDB, into tools like that. Uh, but yes, you know, we're, we're going to start picking up those uh, enterprises on the, the back half of the adoption curve. Absolutely. And please don't think that I'm implying criticism of these folks. I want companies that do banking and healthcare to have a little bit more rigor to their engineering process than, well, I wrote this code at three in the morning. It's awesome. Probably I'm too tired to tell to production with it. There needs to be something that gates code and enforces a level of maturity before some things make it to production. Not everything needs to be fail fast, iterate quickly like a typical startup would. I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with a company today that is not investing in serverless. It is not a panacea that solves all problems. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, again, coming from the enterprise background where definitely the, um, the tendency is to err on the side of things taking forever, um, I, I do appreciate moving quickly. Uh, one of the great things about serverless, and several people have mentioned this, uh, is that it allows you to try a bunch of different prototypes. There's really very low cost of failure. So you're able to uh, go through and, you know, say you're not sure exactly uh, which of three ideas is going to work. You spin them all up in Lambda. You know, it's easy to A, B, C, D, E, F, G test something when uh, that infrastructure is only being paid for while it's being used. Uh, so it's easy to do things like blue green and, you know, phased rollouts and canary deployments. Uh, all of that becomes very cost effective with Lambda. So, and of course, uh, the other services that are, that would be involved in that type of a stack. So there's really no barrier to people going out and, and being innovative and trying stuff with these services. It takes you a while to catch up with the, you know, your, your legacy applications and folks need to go out and get training. You're absolutely right. That that's going to take time. There's no rush per se, no, no immediate rush, but uh, I don't think there's any benefit to sticking your head in the sand because ultimately you are going to get lapped by the folks that are taking the time to level up and invest in their people and uh, take advantage of these technologies. Absolutely. Could not agree with you more. Uh, a personal question for you. In your official biography, you talk about your master's degree, you talk about the work that you're doing with A Cloud Guru and of course with Trek 10. And then at the end, you throw in that you're an AWS certified solutions architect, a professional grade. Where do you stand on the idea of pointing at a certification as proof positive that you know what you're talking about? It, it struck me as a little odd because you are a known person in this space. And generally, past a certain point, there's a segment of our sector that looks down on certifications. How do you feel about it? Well, uh, yes, you say official biography, like you picked my authorized biography off a, off a shelf somewhere. I think you're referring to my um, blurb on the Track 10 website. Well, you don't want to know what the unauthorized biography has to say about you, I assure you that. Well, that's why it's unauthorized, right? Uh, but yes, so um, 
I, I definitely agree with you about certifications being of, uh, you know, questionable value if they're not backing up expertise in the real world. Uh, I love the Dilbert cartoon where the guy is talking about, uh, I summon the vast power of certification. Uh, and it's faintly ridiculous that that would be expected to, to do any good in that scenario. Um, but, uh, you know, if you work for an MSP, which I do, um, you know, there's, there's value in certifications because it uh, relates to your relationship with the provider. So that's why that's on my Trek 10 bio uh, from a larger perspective. Yes. You know, uh, your work speaks for itself. And if you don't know what you're doing, no certification is going to um, make the difference, but uh, I don't have any inherent problem with people getting certifications. You know, I have more than one. Um, I, I've gotten some value from them and I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad about them. Yeah. I tend to be a little bit on the other side where I don't tend to have virtually any professional credentials. That said, a couple of months back, I sat for the cloud practitioner certification for AWS, which for those who are unaware is their entry level certification that presupposes about six months of having worked vaguely with something in AWS. And my reasoning behind that was not because I'm going to use that to lend legitimacy to who I am and what I I do. I have none of that. Rather, at reInvent and other AWS events, there's a certification lounge that has comfy seats, snacks, coffee, and access to power. So I view it as a lounge fee with a really weird entrance questionnaire. Well, that's fair. And I guess it's just all about uh, what sort of status you're seeking. So uh, if you've if you found something that uh, makes the certification desirable for you, then I think you should go ahead and get it. But uh, you shouldn't get the certification just to have it. I mean, that's that's the rationale for any degree too, right? I have a master's degree in computer science, which is one of the weirdest degrees you can hold because it doesn't map onto any particular job. It's not like a bachelor's degree where a lot of software engineering jobs, for better or for worse, rightly or wrongly, or look at that as an entrance requirement. It's not like a PhD where it maps onto things like uh, data science and you know very specific types of jobs. Uh, a master's degree is just very much in the middle, I did that because uh, I love to learn and, and wanted to continue to uh, working on some things that I wasn't really getting exposed to in my day job. So I, I don't regret that at all. I, I'm really proud that I got the degree, but I don't look at it as uh, something that you know makes me better than people that have been working in the space for years and have a lot of experience. It's just it's it's a very different thing. Exactly. I tend to reserve the I'm better than you credentials for frequent flyer status, as most right-thinking people tend to do. Absolutely. <laughs> in other news, we're going to be appearing shortly at Serverless Conf in San Francisco. I'm looking forward to that. Can you give us a sneak peek of what you're going to be talking about? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'll be doing a number of different things at Serverless Conf this year, so uh, definitely come and say hi if you're out there. Uh, but one of the things I'll be doing is a talk with uh, Jared Short. We will be uh, actually looking at some different personas within a large organization or enterprise, so large or small, uh, that may have trouble getting on board with serverless adoption. Because I think a lot of folks that come to Serverless Conf are already excited about serverless, right? They're coming because they want to know more about it, and they're going to learn all these great ideas, and they'll say, okay, well, how can I go back and take this to my organization, take this to my boss who's skeptical, uh, and take this to the architect who's got concerns about vendor lock and How can I take this to the sysadmin who's kind of a, a server hugger and says, well, if I can't adjust my TCP window size, then you know I, it's, it's a no-go for me. And how am I going to talk to the developer whose workflows are being disrupted? And of course, most importantly, how am I going to deal with that person on Hacker News who just reflexively hates serverless for all reasons and no reason? How am I going to uh, get past them in order to actually get a serverless project off the ground in my company. So we'll be talking about that. We've got some tried and true uh, things that we've used working with clients and working in uh, our roles. And uh, we hope you'll enjoy it. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people observe the majesty that is your work? 
Well, um, I, without uh, confirming or denying anything implied in that statement, uh, you can certainly find me on Twitter at Forest Brazil. Um, I do work for Trek 10, so you can look up uh, my blog post there at trek10.com. Uh, Trek 10, of course, is a AWS uh, managed service provider. We do a lot of serverless projects. We help all sorts of clients, large and small. Uh, so if you have that kind of a problem and you need some expert advice, we would be more than happy to talk to you. Uh, and then I hope you'll check out my uh, writing at A-Cloud Guru as well. Um, Corey mentioned the serverless superhero series over there. Uh, and I also draw that Fast and Furious cartoon series. So definitely uh, check that out and let me know if you have any uh, serverless war stories that you would like me to share. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, Corey. And I look forward to seeing you at uh, the AWS Summit in New York. Indeed. My name's Corey Quinn. This has been Forrest Brazil. And this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.